Hi everyone, I'm Jonathan Corrie, co-founder and CEO of Precursive. Welcome along to the Precursive Perspective, our podcast where we sit down with some of the leading minds across customer success and professional services. In each episode, I speak with people involved in scaling companies of all sizes, from hyper-growth startups to mid-market SaaS, all the way through to enterprise technology and communications companies, as well as, of course, members of the investment and VC community now. And we explore how the best companies succeed in this continually evolving services delivery ecosystem with uh, special guests also including my two dogs Cosmo and Ace, uh, my kids Frank and Artie, Frank now famous for pulling his tooth out live on one of the shows. Uh, now before we get into today's episode, in case you didn't know, spoiler alert, Precursive is the leading services delivery cloud for Salesforce. We combine award-winning task and resource management with easy-to-use professional services automation. Uh, built on the Force.com platform, uh, we're 100% Salesforce Lightning native, which means you can better align your sales and delivery teams, automate project admin so that your staff get time back to focus on driving outcomes and value for your customers. We believe very deeply that there is a direct correlation between faster time to value and retention. So bridging that gap between sales and success is priority one for Precursive. So let's get into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Precursive Perspective with me, John and Corey. I look like I'm, you know, being interviewed uh, for my crimes here today because, uh, spoiler alert, I'm in our new office in, in London, um, which is very nice. I'm in a super hot cool booth room, which is also not so nice. Uh, and I'm delighted to be joined today by a business which is also super hot in the marketplace, which is MongoDB. And I'd love to welcome uh, Brad Jacobs, who's the VP of Worldwide Professional Services. How are you, sir? I'm doing great today. Thanks, Jonathan. Good, good. good. You're also in London. Where's where's home for you? I am in uh, London. I live in southwest London by Clapham uh, Clubham Junction area, Clubham Common. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Very good. I am an East Dulwich man, so okay. I'm I'm Obviously also <laughs> also south of the river. Also south of the river. Uh, well, listen. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to join us today. Uh, just to begin with, it'd be great if you could give us a little bit about kind of the scope of your role and uh, and any uh, kind of career or industry highlights leading up to this as well, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, not a problem. So. Uh, here at MongoDB, I joined when the company was uh, much smaller as the, in the same role that I'm in today. Uh, the PS organization was 35 people. The, the entire company was 750 people. Um, and it is in purely professional services, which at the time when it was 35 people, as you can imagine, was fairly unsophisticated. And you know, it was bootstrapped just doing what we could. Since then, uh, almost five years ago now, we're so 200 people plus and in, in services and the, the larger organization is approaching 4,000. And so it is still strictly services, in, which is to say that I, I don't have under my responsibility anything like support or customer success, but you know, we, we work very closely with all of these other functions and we try to operate as a, as a you know, broader unit nonetheless. From a services perspective, we're responsible for helping to sell services, getting customers delivered and successful, and, and ultimately at more or less paying for ourselves to continue to grow and invest in services so that our customers get more benefit. 
Awesome, awesome. And tell us a little bit about like the solution if, if folks don't know MongoDB, which a lot of people will know MongoDB. Um, but tell us a little bit about uh, what you guys provide in terms of value in, in your solution for your customers. Sure. So it is, uh, you know, MongoDB began as a document-based database, which has evolved toward a, you know, or into more of a, a SaaS data platform in our Atlas platform, where we have a variety of data-oriented solutions. We're not trying to, or let's say products, we're not trying to be a solution provider, an application provider. We want to provide all of the ingredients for developers to build uh, modern applications. And the, the fact that it's a document-based database, I don't want to... To, not to stress, it's it's the novel way, more or less, uh, for developers to build applications relative to how they once were built and still are built on top of relational databases like Oracle and DB2, et cetera. Um, the, the document base means that you don't need to predefine all of your schema ahead of time and figure out how your data is going to, to work and normalize all of that. But it also means, uh, certainly the way that we've implemented it, that it's very integrated into the developer experience. And so that yep. you interact as a developer with the database as if you were writing code because you're, you're just writing code, very unlike other relational databases where you interact through, uh, through calling SQL scripts that then call the database and, there, and there's an extra ab level of abstraction and sometimes even some mad science trying to figure out what those queries look like. Uh, a thing that I've at least been familiar with in the past um, and, and struggled with, uh, but here, it's, you know, there are still challenges and there are still uh, interesting different ways for developers to do things right or do things wrongly, but it's a much more seamless experience and developers tend to like that more. Right. Okay, cool. And and it, it's, I, I thought what was interesting about your background, because I, I do deliberately sort of, you know, pick people in the marketplace that I want to talk to. And I noticed Bizarre Voice was probably, as you know, the Irish legend, the Irish wizard, Pat Phelan, right? Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, so I'd imagine with that that experience, Bizarre Voice, and then Fuse and MongoDB, you've seen a few different iterations or or nuances. I would imagine to like post sale delivery, right? I, I would guess in your in your career coming up. Yes, uh, I've I've been fortunate and a little bit uh, deliberate mm. to choose solutions that were completely different uh, because it's it's a different challenge. Uh, yeah, because. I, Frankly, I'm less concerned with the technology myself, and I'm more concerned with the the, the business ownership, the business management, the scale and, and transformation, etc. Uh, so I've I've done a variety of different things, and in fact, you know, we can talk about this. But at one point in my career, I tried to go back and do a thing that I had done similarly, which was to go to Puppet Labs. Yeah, and yep. I, and and they've they've been successfully just been acquired by Perforce, but yep. I figured out within weeks that I was there that that was not a good decision to go back to something that I was more familiar with. I wasn't happy there at all, and I, I, I sort of found the nearest escape hatch. <clears throat> That's interesting. I it's it's a bit different because like when I was uh, when I was younger, I was um I I believed the same thing. I always wanted to do a different. My dad was an entrepreneur, and I always wanted to do a different industry. So sure. I, I think I started in recruitment, and then I went into events, which is where I met my lovely wife, and then went to this random American company called the Corporate Executive Board that, that had like the three most kind of corporate sounding names that they tried to cram into one company name, which my my friends always found rather amusing, which was like subscription services, subscription research services. 
uh, and then and then got into software, literally knowing absolutely nothing about software. So I, I totally buy into that. Like you want to go forward, and then when you go back to something, you're like, nah, nah. I've kind of, I've kind of seen this. That's Isn't that's really. Me? I need to get out of here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. I, I think then over that um, over that time, then you would have seen. I because because I've I've witnessed it really even over the last kind of six years that I've been involved in precursive like the even the evolution of like our services delivery and the expectations from customers on like what that feels like um, I think it gives me some reassurance that you were saying that you were at thirty five people and you were still kind of figuring it out right which is which gives me uh, which gives which 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 makes me feel better um, but I think one of the things that we see is like. It, so also within the technical environment in particular when you're dealing with developers or technical buyers is like there is this kind of like expectations from customers that you know they're gonna get their hands on the product or service very quickly i mean how how have you seen this world of software and SaaS evolve you know and how has that in your view shaped the world of professional services yeah um so you mentioned bizarre voice that was my first SaaS business. Uh, yeah. I had come from BMC Software, which was you know, very much an old perpetual software, brick and mortar, stodgy uh, company that was that had, was not good at innovation. Mm-hmm. And you know, I left there to go to Bizarre Voice, where I met uh, Pat Phelan, who you mentioned, and worked with him. And uh, I had no idea you know, what I understood SaaS, but I didn't really understand anything yet. And you know, one of the one of the things that I saw very quickly was that at least at Bizarre Voice, their approach when I, when I first got there was, let's just sell some things to our customers. Uh, and ultimately, Bizarre Voice, as I'm sure Pat would have mentioned, offered a ratings and reviews uh, widget and capability for uh, manufacturers and retailers to, to put on their website and then a, a, a network of ratings and reviews in the back end that they could share across, et cetera. And... So we were not doing implementation consulting per se. This was a product that the customer and generally their agency, their design agency or artistic agency would have to implement in their website. And we, were there, we would be there just to provide very advisory technical consulting to that. Um, and a few, and I, I recognized a few things fairly quickly. One, uh, without a really strong business case for a given website or for a given web property, neither the retailer nor manufacturer really cared to go quickly. So we had to work with them from customer success, from sales, from PS to, to, to help make that case and, and to continue to define and redefine that, that value add. Uh, on the services side, I had come from this very classically uh, you know, P&L driven professional services business. And I, I joined Bizarre Voice where they had no such thing as statements of work. They had no such thing as scope. They didn't really know they didn't really think about PS only to say that sometimes they could sell PS. And usually the sales rep would have sold, uh, if they had sold PS, it would be a thousand dollars. And if they had not, it would have been zero, but it would, but we'd still have to do all the things that we had to do. And those things were undefined because it was just either a zero or a thousand dollars. And maybe it's <laughs> 800 days worth of work. Right? And so uh, meanwhile, Bizarre Voice was going through this, this transition themselves of going from a, uh, very bespokely designed product that was more of a platform that they would they would build for their customer who to then implement to a much more of a SaaS, uh, not not hosted but a you know SaaS uh, or 
um, uh, application that they called Conversations. And conversa Conversations had plenty of problems. It was very new, teething issues, but it meant that the customer had to go, we, we had to do a lot less effort. The customer had to go from doing a lot of work to doing very little work. Um, but there was still some non-zero effort and there was still a process to be followed. And there was still, if you do this, you get this benefit. And if you do that, you get that benefit. So the first thing that we did was um, work with the sales team to define how are we actually going to sell PS. And this was specifically for EMEA. We did this in spite of some objections from our US counterparts. But how would we sell PS? How would we define that? We would, we would work with the customer, manage expectations, design the scope of work on uh, a statement of work format. And we began to sell you know, a lot more than $1,000 worth of PS in general, but also we, we gave our customers the option of saying, you know what, I don't want any help. Or you know what, I only want this small little package, or I want this, I want this project where you're gonna really help shepherd me through. And, and obviously, you know, having been in that you know, classical brick and mortar company, I, I was able to understand like, how do we shepherd customers through and set expectations rather than how do we just do you know, open bar or whatever. And, and then once we had that, it was actually a lot easier for us to have this sort of meaningful engagement and joint accountability between our customers and ourselves. Um, the workload for my team was far more rationalized, which, which yep. did a lot to inspire morale. And, and, and also customers felt like, oh, hey, I've paid for this. Maybe I do actually want to pay attention to it rather than not. And you know, we felt that we, uh, that we were actually helping customers to get live in their web properties a lot faster, frankly, by charging them for it and by setting expectations and by driving them through that, which is not necessarily how everyone thinks about services. And some people say, well, let's just give it away because it adds value. But, but sometimes it's you, you value more what you pay for. And that was certainly the case of Bizarre Voice. And, and so we saw that. And, and when I was at Fuse, uh, you know, similarly, there was a there was a lot of challenge behind between uh, do we charge our customers for this thing that we really want, which is to get them live or or do we not? And so we spent a lot of energy defining, well, what are the basic things that we have to do that our customers can't? And what are the what's the value added stuff on top of that that the customer could do? And we have to go and you know, expose that to them and like just set expectations. Um, and then, frankly, similar thing here. Uh, it's always about what can you do versus what can't you do. Where, where do you need help? Uh, and where where is that value add? And then exposing that to the customer and having those business conversations. It it just it adds so much value and momentum to the process. Yep, yep. There's a lot in that uh, that I'm, I'm going to also try and summarize as we go through because I think I think you really. Like there's a couple of very interesting insights in there, which is if you the the strength of the business case impacts the deployment velocity and urgency is 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 so bang on because it it's really interesting how much time and effort goes into companies developing sales processes and methodologies. And you've got, for example, medic, which I think probably you guys use or value selling or solution selling. Right. Yeah. And so you're teaching these actually very sophisticated business acumen, business case structuring team. Salesforce, for example, they have a business case value team that does that. And it comes together and it's like, we're going to deliver this amount of revenue, this amount of change, this amount of automation, da, 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 and it's justifying this X million spend and this ROI. And, you know, realistically, that's slide one in your kickoff, right? It's like, this is why we're all here, ladies and gentlemen. Now, if that is 
the holy shit moment of wow if we can if we can deploy this thing in you know x amount of time we're all going to save you know uh, uh, 20 hours a week right yeah. and 2000 hours in total i i'm kind of all in i i think that's that is that is underappreciated i think in terms of that how do you build that connection between the two teams right between sales and delivery Agreed. it's like it, it's like they're these two tribes and they actually don't understand that that's the central sort of nodal point between the two which i think is really interesting and i love your phrase of open bar i'm 100% stealing that because we <laughs> we 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 are in that situation as well because we we have a solution that's that, that's on salesforce so it's very flexible and we believe that that's our diff, one of our differentiators but it's also something that hampers you because then you start well, yeah, you can do that. And yeah, you can do that. And yeah, you can do that. And then suddenly you've got your configuration has just spread and all Absolutely. of these types of things. So uh, I, 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 I love that. Now, you know, customer success has also, particularly since the the, the pandemic, right? It's really the, the, the world has shone a light on customer success and SaaS because, you know, for many organizations, they would have been impacted by the pandemic, perhaps on the new business front. So CS is risen and perhaps accelerated over the last few years but you know you can be the best csm in the world and if the implementation has failed you're you're, you're not going to be able to do your job so how do you think though that that rise in importance of cs has shifted how services operate uh, services teams operate because it's getting a lot of press but kind of i feel like services is the unsung hero in a way <laughs> no, I, I think I think they're both the unsung hero, if I'm honest. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I, I firmly believe that the customer success team, uh, you know, in many cases are doing the uh, yeoman's work. And yeah. uh, yes, they get some praise for it, but uh, they, they, there's a lot of work there. So mm -hmm. the, um, I think what's what's the way that I see it, uh, you know, I mentioned I was a BMC software. There was nothing, so, no such thing as customer success. They weren't SaaS. Uh, I yep. think they've since rebranded services to customer success, but from my understanding, it's basically the same thing. The right. uh, which may be an exaggeration. So uh, Bizarre Voice was the first place that I really experienced customer success, and I think mm. uh, they had a very strong customer success program. And my understanding is that in the CS industry, they're at least well known to have had uh, a very strong CS program. I think they had you know some very good practices and some good thought leaders there. And, and I learned a lot just from, you know, watching them and working closely with, with them, uh, with Pat and his team, et cetera. The, what, what I, the way that I've, be, I've come to think of it over time, though, is that there is a strong intersection between what professional services need to do and what customer service, uh, success need to do. Um, but especially as we all focus more on uh, greater customer adoption and, and consumption and this sort of pay per use model, the it it's a tighter choreography between the two organizations, and I, I think that you know anyone would be remiss to treat them wholly independently. And it's not just about collaborating; it's about collaborating toward very joint goals and having shared goals between them for uh, in in a given in a, in a given company, but also even within yeah. a given account. And making sure that there is there's a well understood uh, sort of roles and responsibilities for a given account of who's going to talk to this person, how did you talk to that person, uh, can you introduce me to this person, what did that person say, right? And and the challenge that we're finding, uh, and I think we're going to continue to come up against until we can really correct this, is 
how do we manage that choreography without stepping on one another's toes such that yep. we're not just sharing goals and going off and working, but like sharing a lot of information over time and, yep. and making sure that we're, that, that everyone involved has like, maybe not perfect, but very, very nearly perfect information. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of blurred lines, right? Particularly in, in, with existing customers where, you know, I've, I've seen it literally with, helping the guys with the situation today where we, we've mm -hmm. got a large enterprise customer uh, they sold one of their product lines so which it meant that you know the, the the team that was using our product in that delivery time no longer existed right yeah. so then you have you have you know a bunch of licenses that are, that are that are not being used not they're not valuable but it's then okay we want to rehouse that and then there's another organization and then you're talking well it, it, we want to do like we want to basically get them onboarded and it's a it's a it's kind of like a poc but do we do we charge for it do we not charge for it right so when you were talking there about you know people do they take consider they take consideration of something that they're paying for more seriously i 100 agree with but then you get into the situation with an existing client of saying well actually in this instance we don't want to do that because that might then be a barrier and that slows us down so there's always that nuance um and 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 i think that education piece, I would imagine, have you, you know, when you talk about that education and communications, do you guys, do you guys do anything there that you think like, is, is it just really working at it and making sure that everyone's aware of it? Or have you created some structures where management or teams come together in specific cadences and things like that? Uh, at the moment, it's the former, we're working on the latter. So right. it's yeah. a little bit more brute force. And yeah. I'd like it. I'd like us to get to a point, you know, fairly soon, like within the next few quarters, where at least for, you know, seventy to eighty percent of those of those interactions, that it becomes a lot more elegant and, yep. and well choreographed. Today, we are stepping on one of those toes, and you know, mm. and it's not yep. it's not causing huge problems, but it's inefficient. Right, right. Well, there is a uh, there's a good episode that I recorded recently with uh, with David Sakamoto, who's the VP of CS at uh, GitLab. Mm -hmm. um who who talked about we talked about this topic and he what they've done is they they focus very very heavily on like documenting things like having those scenarios documented and who owns what i think it's a lot of work there's a lot of work to get it to the point right where it's understood yeah um okay cool so if we if we kind of turn to you guys for a moment then so you've mentioned you started 35 people in ps you're now at about 200 and i understand that you're getting you, you know you're going to be growing to is it 300 this year uh, we will uh, we will have at least 300 people in PS by the end of the year, and we're likely, given what's happening this year at the moment, we're likely to be over that. Wow. Okay. And so, are you guys looking at kind of how you need to sharpen or transform, you know, your 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 services delivery? What's can you tell us a little bit about anything yeah, that's happening there? Absolutely. Um, so there are there are a number of aspects to this. One is that we are, you know, I'm strengthening the. So the, the leadership infrastructure at the top and bringing in some extra leadership, bringing in more operational control, making sure that we have just stronger controls over the business. And we're looking at building a, a roadmap of uh, how we manage our data and telemetry, et cetera, for the business. And that's, that's, mm -hmm. an, that's an active initiative. Um, we're also, though, thinking about how do we, how do we scale? And you know, one, of those, one of the problems of scale in any case, uh, but, but you know, at that height is enablement of the team and making sure that you can, you maintain quality. So we're investing fairly heavily 
in delivery enablement, sales enablement, and that enablement is at the technical level for new hires, for partners, that enablement is uh, for our, our service to sales team, but also for our project managers and delivery leaders, et cetera. So there's yep. a lot of work happening there. And then, and, and then at the same time, as I mentioned, this interaction with customer success, we're also evolving the professional services business uh, to be more customer success uh, oriented. And that isn't to say that we're trying to take over customer success, but, but really see more of that intersection and operate in a way that's much more deliberate about uh, adoption of our product within a given customer. So uh, to make that more tangible, we've always had this objective of helping our customers to adopt more and, and therefore to grow our footprint within our customers. But I think the way that that's been uh, interpreted and metabolized by many in the delivery team has been, well, I just go in, I solve problems for my customer. I'm, I'm smart. They like the product. And mm-hmm. you know, Bob's your uncle, like they'll, they'll grow and everything's fine. But, but the reality is that what we want is for the team to be much more deliberate about discovery and influence and, and putting more playbooks in place for how do we gain influence? Because frankly, you know, services is not sales and it's not not sales. And I think yeah. I want my team to f- fully metabolize that over the coming quarters that we, yes, we are all in sales. And that's not to say that uh, anyone who feels conflicted about that from a consulting perspective, because sometimes those conflicts exist yeah. within, a, within an individual or a team, that, that they also understand that our job uh, working with the customers is to make our customers successful, but to do so in a way that ultimately makes our sales team far more efficient and effective and, yeah. and therefore helps our customers to grow. And as we as a company focus more on uh, allowing our customers lowering friction for our customers to adopt more of the product and reducing the number of transactions that they have to, that they need to do that. It democratizes the ability for us to help our customers grow and for help our customers adopt. And it means that while uh, most of the new workloads and new applications that are going to be put onto MongoDB Atlas for the, for the foreseeable future are going to come from the sales team. It, it does not preclude services from having a direct impact. And I find that really enticing. Mm. Yeah, it's always this. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like sales is always a bit of a dirty word in in services and success. But it's it's actually it's like, you know, I, someone said to me a long time ago, it's like uh, he, he, I was in a meeting and someone said to them, oh, nice pitch. And and the, the, the person I was with said it, it wasn't a pitch. It's kind <laughs> of this, there was this kind of like, uh, you know, moment. It's not a pitch if I know what I'm talking about, right? It's yeah. just, it's Good. just business. Confidence. So, yeah. And, uh, uh, credibility. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the point that I make, acumen as well, right? Yes, ex- exactly. And the point that I make to my team is that uh, consultative selling is, is heralded because it's consultative, right? So we're the consultants, yeah. but let's, let's figure out how to, how to learn the other side of that, uh, of that phrase as well. And yeah. you know, be consultative to our customers in a way that if we believe to your point for credible and we believe in the value add, then let's help our customers get more value from it. Yeah, great, great people in PS. I think the, the feedback that you'll always see from if you've got a great process, whether it's pre-sales or in a services environment, is the client will be saying, you know, I would pay for this interaction, right? I would pay for this process that you're taking me through because I'm learning so much more about my problems and the nature of the problems and then multifaceted. And actually, you know, we see that all the time when we could do we do certain things process walkthroughs reverse demos with clients and and you see 
the, the senior person doesn't know actually that all of this shit's happening at this level and they're seeing it for the first time and they're like wow we're working what way like uh, uh, you know so i think i think that's i think that's very illuminating i think the the enablement um uh, side of things like we're working in this remote environment now so how has the how has the remote environment do you think changed the way that you work with your team and or you know with your clients what Sure. kind of benefits have you seen from that and maybe perhaps what are some of the challenges that you've also encountered i know that's quite open you know you can start oh, with internal and client-based or whatever you want but sure i look i think i think everyone has a degree of fatigue about the current situation uh yep enough said right zoom is <clears throat> can be exhausting and yeah i think that you know what that does is it offers this sort of always on opportunity to connect with people and you know it's easy and obviously efficient and that people don't have to travel to to get everyone together in a meeting especially across time zones and geographies etc and i found i have found that at least effective and useful but i've also found it really inefficient because uh you know being based in london i have good time zone with i, I you know good time zone access to apac good time zone access to P us west coast but they don't have good, they still don't have good time zone access to one another. So if I want to have an all hands meeting for my global team, mm. that's painful. And even for my global leadership team, if we actually want to workshop, it's still so much better, uh, at least from memory, to get in front of a whiteboard and get everyone in a room together. And, and so I've, I found that that is difficult. The other thing that I find internally, and I suppose that all of these things apply to ex externally as well, is that when everyone's on a Zoom, the only way to have any sort of side conversation ever is via Slack or something like that, or you know, some chat app, because the you know there is only a single conversation that's allowed on Zoom at any given time. Whereas uh, if you're in a workshop all day, there are coffee breaks, there are you know lunch breaks. You get to pull someone aside and say, "Hey, let's have a quick conversation," and and that there's some there's some fidelity lost in that. And when we think about working with our customers, it's a lot more efficient. They, we are available when they're available and vice versa. We can get on a Zoom with them for half a day without travel. We could, you know, we even have a, a line of business, our flex consulting that is half day uh, units of consulting for customers, which can be very effective for our smaller customers who need just transactional help. Where yep. the, uh, but from a field perspective, uh, you know, those people who once traveled to our customers, uh, while that might become harder even in the future because on-site means a little bit less when the customers have had some sort of diaspora of, of like working locations. Um, the, it, it also means that there aren't these water cooler conversations. There aren't these conversations in, you know, at lunch where you get to meet other people that you're not working with. It's difficult to have those side conversations. It becomes much more perfunctory and superficial. And so there is, there's no rush for the team to get back into traveling into the field and you know i and the team i think for the most part are fairly safety conscious and you know we're not trying to do anything that that might cause any super spreader events or anything like that but there is a a recognition that we will have more influence and more impact on our customers when we're face to face when we're able to have side conversations yep. where you know you run that process and wait five minutes isn't okay let me go check my email for five minutes it's Hey, so how was your weekend? And what are you doing? And have you heard of this? And oh, Bob over there on that cubicle, he's here, or you know, or Sally over there, she's 
also using MongoDB or thinking about it, you know, let's yeah. go talk to them and show them what we're doing. That's the sort of thing that as a consultant I used to do once upon a time. Uh, but it's, I, I can absolutely imagine that it's far more difficult to have any of that sort of tangential impact uh, when mm-hmm. you're on. Yeah, yeah. It's also, do you find that it's it's from a capacity planning perspective? It's 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 interesting, right? Because in a, in a way, you can have more capacity, right? Because like you, you mentioned, you don't have the travel element. I mean, I was chatting to a friend of mine who runs a consulting business. He's like, you know, we'd have to fly in day one and then, you know, then you do your workshop day two and day three and then fly and like the whole week's done, right? Yeah. Uh, and and that was like, uh, you know, arguably inefficient or certainly costly. But, and then you've now moved to a world where you can have, uh, well, you wouldn't want it, but eight hours of Zoom calls a day. But that mm-hmm. from a capacity planning perspective is is much more fluid and almost like lumpy, right? It's much more sure. agile and iterative. Do you, have you found that like, it, it becomes a lot more, dare I say, it's like this, we call it this high velocity services delivery. It's kind of all over the shop, right? Is that much, do you find that much more difficult to manage for people and individuals, do you think? Or what are your I, thoughts I actually, there? I think that, I think that that's, that's almost been net zero for us. And the reason is because everything that you've said is true, but it also means that from a customer perspective, it's a lot harder when someone's knocking on your door saying, hey, I've just flown in from wherever. Uh, to say, I'm sorry, we're canceling for the day. It's a lot harder to yeah. do that when you're knocking on the door than when you're like supposed to be scheduled on Zoom. And what we find right. is that, um, you know, certainly our last minute cancellations spiked during COVID, which made sense. But even since then, they've never really come back to pre-COVID levels. Um, and I think that's just because it's easy. It's very easy to get distracted. Uh, it also means that it's it's harder for to your point about eight hours of Zoom a day, it's harder for one person to, whether it's from our side, which we'll do if, if, if we need to, but from the customer side, just dedicate eight hours in a given day to Zoom or even seven hours in a day to Zoom when yeah. got, you know Slack going off and texts going off and emails coming in and it's very easy yeah. to get distracted. So there are certainly efficiencies in terms of travel and timing and, and capacity, but there become all these uh, inefficiencies in execution that are the norm now, but it would be nice to, you know, be back to some degree of normal at some point. Cool. Well, last couple of things, super interesting. I mean, loads of good stuff in here, I think, for for people to take away. And I steal loads of these ideas as well, Brad. So that's great. I love, I love, I love people's language. I'm always like workload rationalization. I love that one. Uh, That's that's, (laughs) that's very good. Um, But um, so, so you, you moving to this more modern SaaS economy type of, services delivery motion focus much more on yeah let's let's outside in right customer first value drives ARR retention and growth and that type of mindset um talk to me a little bit like in this new world about what are some of the metrics that matter to you be that I don't know things like time to value or whatever might be be that but what, what are some of the kind of like the key metrics that you're more focused on now and less so kind of the traditional services, revenue, and margin? So we still look at, because we have people to pay and the business to you know, effectively run, we care about how yeah. much services are we selling. We care about, therefore, how much revenue are we delivering and you know, what does that do to margin, et cetera. Um, but we very much as a company think of that revenue as reinvestment opportunity and that margin yeah. is reinvestment opportunity. Um, and you know, I spoke with someone yesterday who ha- is running 
uh, working for a competitor and running a business, a services business there where they have a very high margin target. And that is not how we've designed things. We've designed things here to uh, at, a, at best break even so that we are reinvesting as much as we can in the business. The, um, nonetheless, these classical metrics, while we still look at them, we're moving toward looking at our impact on ARR. And we've been doing that increasingly over the past few years. So you know, one of the <clears throat> first things that we began to do was look at um, for customers who bought services, how have, how have they grown relative to customers who did not buy services? And we, we've been looking at that for years and we, we run that report every year or two. And it's always uh, customers who, buy, who don't buy services over eight quarters, they grow like 12%. And customers who do buy services over eight quarters, they grow 112%. And that's pretty consistent. And frankly, not that surprising, but at the same time, yeah. not strong Matt, in a, in a way. defining whether it's correlative or, or, causation, or, or causative, right? We don't yeah. know our service is actually doing that or is there like our customers already essentially uh, telegraphing their commitment to be successful by buying services. So it's, it's kind of hard to say. We did, mm. however, look at customers who did not consume versus customers who did consume. And that felt like a bit more strongly correlated and, and causative because customers who, uh, well, I don't remember the exact numbers, customers who did consume versus not grew faster. Uh, at the same time, we also started looking at Oh, not just over an eight quarter period, but over a running three quarter period. Uh, how have customers uh, spend, how, have, how has their spend grown in terms of ARR uh, over a three quarter period versus a baseline of customers where we did not interact with them at all? So we looked at all the customers where PS did interact in a given quarter based on timesheets, et cetera. And then all the other customers, how do they did not interact? And, and you know, customers who worked with PS were consistently growing you know, considerably faster and so, so that, that we felt was good. But actually, all of these are sort of post hoc, and it's difficult to understand what you can learn from that. So if I'm a consultant or if I'm, a, if I'm running uh, North America, for example, okay, so my customers grew uh, you know, 20% faster than, than the baseline over the past three quarters. What did we do three quarters ago that actually caused that? And, and how do I even know what that was? And, or... Or my, worse, my customers didn't grow. What do we learn from that? And so that we're not. I'm, I, I very, I grew disenchanted with that, with that model of, of really looking at that. And so what we're doing at the moment, and we haven't, we haven't completed this yet, but we're looking at defining what we believe to be uh, hypothetical leading indicators for all roles and services. So if you do A, B, and C, very much like a sales model, if you do A, B, and C then this, has a, this suggests a high probability that you will have a positive impact on your customer's adoption and growth. And so what are those A, B, and C for a consultant or a project manager or, a, or an engagement manager or, or whatever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, I think these, we haven't defined those yet uh, fully, but, but like we have a pretty good idea of where we want to go with that. And I think that's going to be a lot better for us to understand, okay, for all the people that did these things, uh, did did they actually see growth for their accounts? And therefore, can we bless that as a formal leading indicator over time? And, and how can we track that? Or do we have to tweak this? That for me is the holy grail of where we need to get to next. Wow, I love it. I love it. I, I really like the, um, it's like a services attach, isn't it? Services attach rate to ARR growth ratio. Sure. That's, that, that's super interesting. We, it's, it's always funny, like I was, again, talking about are as we're growing and evolving and we're not your size yet we're only 50 people right now right but 
you know, our, our legacy from, you know, customers four years ago where we were like, let's have a product that you can just buy off the shelf, right? You just buy it and install it. We, we're, um, as you, you, you may know, but the listeners know, we're like a, a, a Salesforce app, right? So we're built on force.com. You can install it in Salesforce and it's pretty straightforward. Great. We were like, let's, you know, have off the page and, and off you go. Now, in theory, that's great to scale, but then, you know, customers get to a certain size and then their, their, their business model changes and then they haven't set it up necessarily the optimized way versus what it is now three years later. So there's all those dynamics that you're trying to navigate through over a multiple year periods. And, and I was, you know, I was talking to, to, to one of the CS leads in America and I said, like, we've just got to accept that there'll be a certain um, part, portion of our customer base that you almost evolve away from. It's not like that they're churning. It's just that you're evolving away from them into a, new world where your average acv is a lot higher the sophistication of what people are doing and your right. your platform is a lot bigger and you've kind of got to be comfortable that that's happening yeah so i think it's, it's interesting that like when you talk about because i think also within this arr growth there's also like a cyclical thing right with customers where it's like you might just have at a certain point in time a group of customers that are going to move on or aren't going to grow just because of the nature of their business model and sure. how their business has evolved versus other ones, right? Sure. Yeah, we I, and certainly our so people tend customers tend to buy databases workload by workload by workload, and so right. so long as there are more workloads, uh, there's there remains more opportunity, and right. for you know, very small customers, for customers that are. Um, you know, maybe have a single application that, that is the, the heart of their business, perhaps. Uh, maybe maybe there is really only one opportunity there, and maybe they only and they only grow, or that instance will only grow at the speed that they're essentially growing. But you know, the larger customers, and and we're not even talking the you know Goldman Sachs of the world, right? They're they're also large, et cetera. But just the medium-sized, larger customers are, you know, they will have many, many different workloads, and frankly. I don't think there's a single customer where MongoDB has 100% penetration. You know, we're still scratching the surface and it's, and you, you would normally have a lot of legacy applications. And so we look at, you know, replacing, displacing, you know, winning new workloads essentially rather than others. Um, yeah. but, you, but you will have customers who are uh, not, not necessarily stalled. That would, we would see that as bad, but who, you know, would grow and add some workloads and then maybe they don't have anything pressing or maybe, they're working on technical debt and backlog and then they grow and they sort of in fits and starts. And we see that happening often. Yeah. Yeah. It's a segmentation almost by business model as well, isn't it? With your customer base. Absolutely. Well, look, it's been, it's been super interesting. I'm, I'm massively grateful for the time. We're going to give you some, some time back. So but I'm going to try and summarize a few of the kind of the learnings for me and hopefully everyone. So I think there's number one is that going back to that, you know, make sure you've got a great business case. A great business case is going to drive, you know, the urgency in, in, in deployment and in services delivery. I think also the, we talk a lot, we, I've heard a lot about this tighter choreography as you termed it between CS and PS. I think what maybe companies need to understand is that needs to translate down, as you said, at an account level, yes. right? Because, because it's all very well and good saying we're both measured on ARR with the, and then you actually get into the day-to-day hand-to-hand combat and then it all goes out the window as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's great. Uh, I think I, I, I just, you know, I'm a big believer in like, you know, moving, moving your services delivery from kind of the open bar 
well to the more productized delivery, at least in phase one, because then you can see faster time to value. And I think what companies don't appreciate, which we which we certainly see, is this workload rationalization, right? Because you're 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 just you're more efficient with the time of your team. Um, I think it's I think I think looking anyone listening to this who's moving from the traditional kind of world of services revenue and margin, which by the way still matters, and your CFO still cares about. And if if you are losing loads of money, you you might lose you you know you might lose more than you know your your job. In fact, but I think understanding the correlation that you've articulated between PS and ARR at, at a consumption level of are they, do people who buy services, like I, I, I know people look at that, but I don't think they understand the correlation could be like you talked about some significant differentiators. And then I love the, the leading behaviors piece around, you know, if you as an individual are doing A, B and C, you're going to drive these outcomes for your client. And that's going to improve your work-life efficiency and the success of your customers. So loads of really good stuff in here, sir. And hopefully it was reasonably enjoyable. Yeah, that was a good time. Thanks, Jonathan. All right. Awesome, sir. Well, listen, Barry, have a great day. Uh, Thank thank you you for joining and uh, look forward to connecting in the future. All right. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Have a great day.